are honored today to be joined by the renowned and prolific historian Jonathan Fender. He's the author of seven China titles, including the award. Sorry, nine. No. He's the author of nine China titles, including, on the, way over. including the award-winning The History of Modern China and Tiger Head Snake Tales. Jonathan is also a prolific journalist, having worked as editor for the South China Morning Post, The Observer, and Reuters International. He is also the founding partner of Trusted Sources, a market research and consultancy firm. This year sees the publication of two books from Jonathan Fenby, The Siege of Qingdao and Will China Dominate the 21st Century. Joining Jonathan to discuss the latter of these titles is someone who doesn't need much introduction to our Beijing audience, Kaiser Guo, the, founder, the co-founder and host of the Seneca podcast, for which this event will be recorded. So without further ado, I hand over to you. Thank you very much. I suppose, Jonathan, we should issue a spoiler alert to begin this. Will China dominate the 21st century? Well, the answer... Well, let, let me just say how this... No, just no, 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 the one-word no. one answer, the one-word answer. As I said to the publisher when they asked me to do this, the answer is in two consecutive letters of the alphabet about the middle. Right. N and O. <laughs> All right, that's, that's, that's a, a reasonable spoiler alert. So anyone who, who plans to be... I mean, he doesn't wait until the end of the book anyway to tell you, but uh, I want to share with you something I, I thought... Uh, my, my initial impression of the book uh, was that you were doing a little bit of straw man tilting. No serious person that I know, at least, maybe I run in different circles, really thinks that China is going to dominate uh, the 21st century, at least uh, by any reasonable definition. Uh, and I, I don't want to push on this too hard, but I remember um, when Susan Shirk, uh, who used to had the East Asia desk for the State Department and is now a, a professor at UC San Diego, uh, when she was was getting ready to publish her last book, uh, which was called China, A Fragile Superpower. She would tell her American friends, I've written a book, it's about China, and it's called The Fragile Superpower, and they'd all look at her and say, fragile? And then she'd cross the Pacific and talk to her friends at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and with other Chinese acquaintances of hers, and she would say, yes, I'm writing this book about China, it's called The Fragile Superpower, and they'd say, superpower? And I mean, well, this is to illustrate the, 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 this notion that, well, yes, uh, things have changed a lot in six years. Uh, this was in you know 2008. And yeah, uh, the, the China, of course, had its 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 moment in the sun with the, the Olympics, and then almost as if on cue, only what three weeks after the closing ceremonies of the Beijing Games in 2008, Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy and sent America into this sort of paroxysm of of self doubt and of declinism. Uh, and so, yeah, then in subsequent years, we saw a lot of you know, Pew polls showing that Americans all thought that the Chinese economy was bigger, that China was eating our lunch, and we had Thomas Friedman banging on about, you know, uh, the superior infrastructure in China and all this. But so, um, do you, do you, how, how do you answer my charge here? Do you, I mean, are, are these guys, you, you're tilting against what? Windmills. Niall Ferguson? Yeah. Oh, look, really? Well, uh, Is he a worthy uh, opponent? <laughs> oh, who am I to say? <laughs> there. No, but I think you underestimate. Maybe the circles you move in. But uh, certainly there is still quite a lot of belief uh, in Europe, in Britain certainly around, and in the United States, that somehow China is destined uh, to uh, play this dominant role uh, in the world uh, during this century. And this is, also, this is fostered by two things, which is uh, the kind of doubt and declinism 
belief in the West, that we're all done for, democracy is hopeless, the gridlock in Washington is going to bring us all down, we haven't got any leaders, the National Front is going to rule France, etc., etc., etc. We're all in a rather depressed mood there. And then there is definitely a, a school of people, without pointing any fingers, uh, who um, kind of are motivated less by pro-China feelings than by a kind of basic anti-Americanism which comes in this. And the Soviet Union let them down rather badly and now China is their new uh, champion. And then you've got <coughs> still, although of course uh, everybody in this room is far too uh, sophisticated to fall for this, but you still meet and you still have people writing in the press in the West who come out on a trip, spend a couple of days in Shanghai and say this is the 22nd century they're so far ahead of us. They go on a high-speed train. There was a big uh, thing the other the other day on, was it, I think it was the BBC or so on, you know, travelling on a high-speed train and comparing it with the British rail system. All this uh, kind of, which isn't actually as bad as uh, some people make it out to be, but uh, all this does induce, I think, a certain feeling of, of, of trying to take over the world. You've mentioned Niall Ferguson, certainly, who argued exactly that my title of my book, The 21st Century Belongs to China, although having come to China and made a documentary, he started to have some slight wobble about this. Martin Jakes. Uh, Martin Jakes, of course, when China rules the world. Uh, when it came out, I said to him, Martin, you're wrong. He said, yes, good title, though. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, to be personal, he's sold a lot more copies than I have. So... <laughs> But I, I wanted to do it. Somebody wanted to set up a debate in London between me and him, uh, you know, on our different views, and he declined uh, to join and said he didn't think anymore that China actually would rule the world. So I'm not quite sure where, where that leaves that. So there is this kind of residual feeling. Um, so I don't think entirely that I've set up straw men in order to knock them over. But I would say that, wouldn't I? So what is the working definition for dominate? Uh, are we to think that at the end of the 21st century we'll look back and say uh, America was to the 20th century as China was to the 21st? Well, that would be domination, or say the 19th, the Britain was, the uh, 20th America, and uh, people you know, projecting forward on the basis, obviously, in Martin's book, too, very much of the past, that the past will tell uh, the glorious dominant future. Domination means really that you are the game changer in the world, and the rule a, a large part of the world. I mean, the, the America had never actually ran the Soviet Union or China. So, you know, we're talking about a, a partial world, as it were. Uh, you're the rule maker. You dominate international organizations. If you want something to be done, you have the power to have it done whether economically or militarily, and if you want something not to be done, you can oppose it. I think that's how one would put domination. Not having you know, military bases in every country around the world, not appointing tin pot dictators the whole time, uh, it's a rather more subtle. And, and by that definition, is there anyone in this room who believes that China, by the end of the 21st century, will be the dominant power? Wow. Okay. Right. Good. Very good. There, there is one. The there is one. one two, two people. Oh, we'll very talk good. About good. It, good. Yes. Good. So this isn't entirely entirely straw man. You're 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 right. Then. Yes. Uh, an earlier work of yours, which was published in 2012, and on your ability to be so prolific just is inspiring. I think it has to do with your children having moved out. Is that right? I say. Anyway, it's um, wonderful to be a grandparent. The children have moved out. My wife is absolutely wonderful. Not only does she find my mistakes and correct my grammar, although she's French, uh, but she still has a tremendous eye for, for duplication and anything like that. But she doesn't mind if I lock myself away at the weekend uh, to work on books. Uh. And the uh, compensation is being a grandparent. The grandchildren come round. But the great thing is the grandchildren usually go home at night. So you're not right. up all night looking after them. 
yeah, I, I've got a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, so you'll see nothing uh, coming out of, out of me for quite some time. Uh, in, in any case, uh, your earlier work was called, uh, I believe, Tiger Head Snake Tales, which is, of course, from the Chinese idiom, uh, which uh, has the meaning of uh, a strong start and a kind of lackluster finish. Very big, but look down, and there's a lot less. Right. Okay. Well, there's that's that's one way. I think um, a strong start and a weak finish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah. Is is that is it fair to say that that book, which weighs in at what three or four hundred pages, is sort of the unabridged version of what we what we now have <laughs> the 130 page slim volume? Uh, yeah. Of us um, in a sense, I mean, I feel I'm just to pick up on that. I'm going through a, a slimming process, which you might oh, not good, believe good. that. Yeah. Uh, I started off with the Penguin History of Modern China that weighed in at 880 pages. Then I went down to Tiger Head at 380, and this one is a crisp 25,000 words. So uh, the next book will probably be about 100 words long, and uh, that'll be all. Uh, but no, actually, what you say uh, is absolutely right. Uh, in a sense, in Tiger Head, I tried to set out an overview of contemporary China, the politics, the economics, society, foreign relations, etc., etc., etc. And it, if you like, that's all the facts. And and uh, while the book's been very well received, some online criticism has been there are too many facts in it, uh, as if I should have pulled some out and so on. Whereas this book has some facts in it, but it's really drawing the analysis and the conclusions from all that earlier material. Okay, I think so. we've, we've established that there are at least two people in this sample size of China watchers uh, who do believe that China will dominate the 21st century. Uh, what about among Chinese people themselves? Is the feeling abroad that this is this century will belong to the Chinese? Do they do they feel it themselves? So we certainly saw a little more swagger uh, from China, China after uh, surviving so well the, the most recent economic downturn. Uh, uh, really I'm not sure. I, I think what you know you you recounted Susan's uh, the superpower question. You know, I get quite a lot of that, but of course here we get into. Uh, mirrors, uh, shadows and shades and so on, uh, who's fooling who in this. Interestingly, with this book, when it came out, I wondered what the reaction from the official uh, party state press uh, in China, whether there would be a, a reaction at all. And China Daily, the English language paper, did an interview with me, which they then ran, and I'm not uh, blowing my trumpet here, but they ran it in as the lead item in a 12-page special supplement discussing the book getting all kinds of people in to, to discuss it. Then, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Global Times, which is not known for its reticence, let us say, ran an op-ed saying, I was absolutely right in the book. This was absolutely correct. And everybody should take note of what I had to say. The immediate reaction to this from some people in America was, ah, Fenby is a useful idiot. He's being used by the Chinese to lull us into complacency while they do take over the world. So, <laughs> well, well, Jonathan, speaking from experience, I can tell you with absolute certainty that the Chinese state media is incapable of that level of subtlety and subterfuge. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I absolutely promise you that. But you know, so it's fair to say, though, that, I mean, th that's, that's consonant with what I've seen as well. That there are not a lot of, of, well, yeah, you have a few wackos on the fringe in the PLA who, uh, yep. but, but for the most part, most people... Uh, know and 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 are correct in knowing that China has an awfully long way to go before it approaches uh, power commensurate with what the United States has enjoyed post-war in the 20th century. Or I think there's a great awareness of that. I mean, you know, the, the, the famous uh, reading list for the new leadership of the uh, the Politburo at the time of the Party Congress in November 2012, and the, we are told the top item was Alexis de Tocqueville on why the Bourbon monarchy fell. 
which was because they introduced reforms, didn't push them through, didn't control them properly, and also because the most dangerous moment for an autocratic regime is when the middle class have made enough money to have time to think. Uh, and if that's your main reading list, it shows you, you, know, you do have a certain worries about, about where you are, I think. Right, a very, very clear awareness of, of just how difficult it is. Um, I've, I've used the analogy many times that the Chinese ship of state is uh, an enormous super tanker-sized vessel held together with duct tape and 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 and, uh, and, and elastic and, bands. And elastic bands, sure. Uh, and uh, the hand on the helm needs to be very firm right now as they make what must be a, a very difficult maneuver, lest they hit the rocks. A maneuver that's going to take them through uh, very treacherous territory, and they don't want the distractions, thus the kind of authoritarian bent to it. But you, you write elsewhere that, um, that that China's civilizational values uh, are, are something that they trumpet. They, that there's a belief that they remain somehow superior. Uh, I, I wonder, though, if any leader in, in 20th century China or today looks at Chinese civilizational values, whatever they are, and and fails to locate precisely the reasons for China's century of humiliation in those civilizational values. I mean, everyone from you know the, the May Fourth Movement uh, to to you know the Cultural Revolution and, and even beyond, uh, it has been a, a cultural iconoclast. Believes that that it's Chinese civilization that's holding China back. Yes, I mean, and that's where, you know, so not to keep citing him, but again, Martin Jakes is one of his big arguments is that China is a civilization state which is, there, which is stronger because of its civilization than the West, which actually doesn't have an equivalent civilization. I would argue against that. I mean, I think, you know, probably a country like France sees itself as a civilization nation uh, at any rate, too. And in Chinese civilization, of course, you've got enormous achievements, uh, uh, artistic achievements, and so on and so on. But uh, the, the, the version of Chinese civilization uh, is that is used often by proponents of China will rule the world is a pretty partial one, it must be said. One hears a lot about the good side of Confucianism. One doesn't hear the basic question about Confucianism, which is that um, the, ru the benevolent ruler deserves the loyalty and obeisance of the people, the father-son relationship. But who defines benevolence in this? The father, not the son. Right, the bad emperor problem. So, you know, you've got the problem there. And then you see in a lot of these books no mention at all of legalism, which is arguably at least as important as a behavior, a way of governing, a way of uh, managing the state uh, as Confucianism. And legalism basically says you have the law, you make the law strong, you apply it to everyone, but you use the law as an instrument of policy to frighten the heck out of all the citizens so they'll do what they're told there, which may be, you know, partly what we're seeing at the moment uh, in China. Um, and that is, that is quite a, you know, that is a top-down way of, of, of running the state always in China. And I think the question has to be, and I'm coming up to the contemporary things, whether that actually works in as complex a society uh, as China has. And after all, the economic the real economic bound in China took place in the 1980s and was very much a bottom-up thing by Deng Xiaoping, you know, where Beijing often didn't, didn't really know what was going on and then authorized things like the, the household uh, system, um, uh, livelihood system, and so on, after it had actually been going for several years uh, in the provinces. And whether you can have 
you know, top-down reform, top-down uh, evolution of this kind of a society, which by its nature, after 35 years of economic growth, has become much more complicated than in the past, is a big question, is one of the reasons why I come up with the answer no. Is, is truly one of the big questions. Um, the question that you pose, though, will China dominate the 21st century? I mean, let's, let's for now, throw that one out. As, I, I as just salt, say one, I say one thing. I was talking in Hong Kong, and somebody stood up and said, how can you possibly predict what's going to happen in, at the end of this century? You know, how can you look so far ahead? And I, I do accept that, in a sense, in the title. Uh, I would say, ch will China dominate the world in our lifetimes? Let's put it that way. Because sure. what's going to happen in 50 years' time, let's, let's come up with, I won't be here. Well, let's come up with some better questions. That, that your book really does address. How about, will the Chinese Communist Party manage to muddle through uh, for the, the next, you know, 10 or 20 years? Will, will it manage to implement the, the uh, reforms that... Uh, you know, when I when I when you tell me that the Global Times endorses what you say, I mean, it, it, it's clear to me that they're aware of the whole set of problems, that the challenges that they face. Will they be able to muddle through? Or maybe a, another question: Will China be able to avoid that that fabled uh, middle income trap that that so many Latin American countries you know, sort of bungled mm -hmm. into, and Southeast Asian countries bungled into? Mm -hmm. uh, these are really sorts the sorts of questions that you, you're getting. Yeah, at, well, right? these are pretty deep existential questions. I think there probably is no alternative to the Communist Party running China at the moment. I mean, in a sense, the Communist Party has made sure of that by eliminating uh, any uh, possible uh, opposition and by placing itself in what's civil society, civic society, uh, in a quite uh, pervasive manner. The famous quote in Richard McGregor's uh, excellent book, The Party, excellent book. that the, the Communist Party is like God. It's everywhere. You just can't always see it. So... Uh, well, God, maybe you can never see him. <laughs> um, but I interpreted that mean deserving of worship. Or well, I... <laughs> of course <laughs> you can do it. Um, But, I mean, I think we come here to, to one of the, the basic things. I think there is no alternative to the party, but we are now at a very, very interesting and incredibly important uh, period in China, which is going to last out uh, for a little while, uh, for some years uh, to come, where I think the leadership uh, of the party accepts the need for economic reform at any rate. Remember in the past, when you had talk of economic reform, let alone political or legal reform, it came from Wen Jiabao. It came from the prime minister who was usually knocked over the head very quickly by the party establishment. Now the important thing that has happened is with the third plenum last November, that this economic reform was discussed and endorsed explicitly in a document which was drawn up by the Central Committee of the Communist Party with Xi Jinping, first signatory, and Li Keqiang's name to be seen nowhere on the document. So you've had economic reform moved from the government, which was always below the party, into the, the highest part of the party with an explicit commitment, and who is chairman? Of the economic of the reform commission, Xi Jinping. That's correct. Who is chairman of the National Security Commission? Also, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Yeah. Who is chairman of the Cyber Security Commission? Xi Jinping. Plus, state president, head of the military commission, and uh, head of the, of the Communist Party. So you've got an enormous concentration of power on this one man, uh, who has committed himself to this 60 decisions document, it lasts, I know, to 2020. Uh, the great question is, can this be implemented and how will it be implemented? Because you've got that on the one side. On the other hand, you've got Xi Jinping saying repeatedly with his party secretary hat on, 
we've got to avoid the Gorbachev trap. We mustn't introduce reform, which would destroy the system. The basic thing is to d defend the system. So the question that we're really, you know, are the two uh, compatible? Uh, are the two compatible? Is okay. So on the one hand, uh, we might, some of us might take encouragement from the fact that uh, Xi Jinping has is not only clearly as very articulately uh, made made perfectly clear that he's aware of the full panoply of difficulties that China faces. Uh, he has also uh, managed to consolidate power. Uh, and has shown the the the, uh, the willingness to exercise that power in the direction of implementing these reforms. On the one hand, on the other, the very fact that he has consolidated power, the very fact that he has shown the willingness to exercise that power, uh, that may uh, be precisely the problem, right? It is part of the problem. I mean, the. With so my, with my research hat on, I'll okay. use one of our, the jargon phrase, the tail risk uh, in China uh, has been removed. In the, the tail risk was that Xi Jinping will become a very powerful leader but would say, reform, I don't want any of that. It's too dangerous. That, so you've removed that. So you're on this thing. But the, the pace of implementation of reform and what it actually means is very is completely up for grabs. We don't know at all. And they've done the easy things to begin with. But when you start to do the more difficult reforms in China, to agriculture, to land holdings, to the hukou system, and above all to the financial system and the state-owned enterprises, you're in the danger there is that because it is such a concentrated, connected system, in fact, the Gorbachev analogy does come out, and you pull one brick out of the wall, and the rest comes crumbling down. And of course, that's what she will want to avoid. So he's got this great power, but the, 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 the question is whether in a year, two years' time, when you face the difficult questions, he'll say, ooh, no, we better be a bit careful about this. Uh, a little while ago, you talked about um, Wen Jiabao as, as one of the original proponents of economic reforms and have, having come from the government. Uh, in a very famous speech in 2007, he, he named the four uns. Uh, they were what? I, mean, uh, they were I always forget China, one of them. Right. So China was China's them. economic development was unsustainable. It was unstable. It was unbalanced, and it was uncoordinated. The four uns. Do you see now, uh, after the third plenary session of the, of the 18th Party Congress, a, 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 an effort to un un the uns, as it were? The fifth un. Yes, uh, <laughs> I think so. I, I think there is an awareness of that because what happened. Remember, and you were probably most of you here at the time. End of 2008, you had, as you said, Lehman Brothers, uh, trade fell off a cliff. Uh, look at the v, v shape, the, the decline in trade and economic growth in the last quarter. The only time it's fallen really seriously uh, in, a, in, a, in a quarter there. And so you had the November 2008 uh, stimulus package, which flung... Uh, $600 million equivalent at infrastructure projects. Billion. Billion. Sorry, billion did I say million? Billion. Billion. Oh, too right. small. God, billion at infrastructure projects. But the total credit expended in 2008 to 2010 was actually 20 trillion yuan, far more than was actually spent. Where the rest of the money went to, uh, who it's knows? It's called the multiplier effect. So you're throwing all this money at it. And of course, that restored growth. So when then, equally, on a trip to Europe, could say, we've. Uh, got the economic remedy that you in the West don't have. Yeah, but then came the hangover, the result of that. The non-performing loans, the whole credit bubble, which in 2010, 2011, which at the moment, the People's Bank of China, 
the finance ministries and others are trying to wring out of the system. Result, we're starting to have defaults, whole question uh, about uh, where the whole uh, financial sector is going to go. Um, so in a sense, uh, you know, you, you've had great success coming out of that, but I think the present leadership who went through all that, although they weren't in absolute charge, they were number twos at the point in the Politburo and the government, they recognize that and they need no, the need to keep off that and to run a better balanced uh, system. But if you do that to begin with, I mean, what's a lot in the, the press at the moment, if you liberalize interest rates uh, through the state banks as well as through the shadow banking sector, you're going to drive uh, a lot of the big state-owned enterprises which live on cheap credit into losses or even bigger losses than they're having at the moment. You then get a whole crisis coming out of this. Um, so, yes, there's a recognition of the need for change and the need for reform, and we saw that in the plenum document, uh, but uh, I keep saying how it's going to be implemented is going to be a long, long and very difficult process, and that is going to be China's uh, priority, not dominating the world. The interesting thing, in, just to finish, in the plenum was we had the 60 decisions document, but there was an explanation document that came with it, right. which listed about a dozen of the challenges and problems facing China, which everybody knows about. But the interesting thing was that these were explicitly listed, and at the end it said the only way of dealing with these is reform. So you do have that recognition and commitment. As always, you know, it's easy to say I'm going to be a good boy, but uh, tomorrow or next day. So I, I want to take this conversation out of the immediate next few years and wondering whether we will be able to deal with the local debt problem or with NPLs. That's not what really people are here to listen to. Uh, we're, we're more interested in a sort of longer-term prospects for China. Right, There's I'll, the better I'll part of 87 years, uh, on, yes. 87 years left in this century. Uh, so you, one, one interesting thing that you talk about is a trust deficit. Um, and uh, that, that's one of the, the things that you, you brought up that I think you know, resonated with me in terms of, of uh, I mean, I, I think back uh, to a simpler time when I, when I first came here, and I realized that, that uh, trust among people, between people and their institutions, it has eroded significantly. What, what's your take on that? What do you, what do you well, I think it is. I mean, you've got, in lots of ways, there's, there's the, <coughs> you know, only believe something when the government denies it. Um, we might say that in Britain too often, but I think it, it's more explicit here. The lack of convincing, as it were, relation, explanation between the rulers and the ruled there. And then, I mean, absolutely what you say is a thing. You look back to a simpler time. I think at a simpler time, despite 1989, there was more of a, a trust in this country is going forward, everything's all right, it's all uh, on the good rails. Now what you're getting, inevitably, I think, and, and this is not surprising, but I think it's a fact of life, is that having gone through the first generation of very strong growth, where everything seemed to be getting better there, you obviously run into problems. It's not the middle income gap there, but it's the pollution it's the air, it's the water, it's food safety, it's all these things, it's other kinds of safety, uh, and so on and so on. And you get built into that a feeling, when I say trust, it, it's broader, that trust in the system and that it is able to deliver uh, what people now want, which isn't simply material advancement, I would argue, there. And then, you know, the technical, the, the, without going into immediate uh, economic technical things, but, you know, can, is China going to be able to take the step up technologically and in invention to go to the next stage uh, of development. You probably saw the figures just today about auto sales in China, which have boomed ahead, but not Chinese cars. 
it's all joint venture cars which are doing well. Again, this shows either a lack of trust in Chinese-made cars or that despite the enormous expansion in volume terms of the automobile industry, Chinese companies as such still can't make cars which Chinese people want. Uh, and this is a kind of, you know, where are we going? It's, it's the why questions that you're getting all the time. Why do I have to wear a face mask? Why can't, you know, why is the water all polluted? Why can't I fa feed my baby baby formula made in China, etc.? And they're pretty difficult questions to answer. In, in other societies that have faced this same gamut of problems as they've gone through uh, development, there has been... Uh, there have been civil society institutions to help to redress some of yep. this. To help yep. And uh, the absence of the, those in China is, is a part of your book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, and you had this certainly, if you take Britain, for instance, or America, the Industrial Revolution, but particularly, let's say, the later 19th century, where you had all these problems, exactly, pollution, water, food, da-da-da-da. You had independent institutions which could come in to some extent. I mean, in Britain, the Labour Party begin with politically there in america teddy roosevelt trust busting etc and then muckraking journalists uh on you know food safety etc etc you had these organ these organizations outside the central political uh establishment and politically and this is where you know i'm an unrepentant old-fashioned liberal western democrat you had the possibility of political change at the mm -hmm. top okay often it was a bit uh, smoke and mirrors and so on and you didn't quite get what you voted for but the possibility was there the trouble in china is everything is so self-enclosed within the system which saw itself as very successful but now is facing entirely normal uh, problems of growth but i don't think has the mechanisms to deal with them we had at least one informal mechanism it, it's lost quite a bit of popularity of late but um you know between 2009 and 2012 uh, even into well into last year uh, a lot of people were still speaking very enthusiastically about the role of social media as an emergent public sphere in chinese life uh, do you think that that's uh, a, a, a reasonable substitute, or I don't think it's a complete substitute. It's a partial. You know, it's a kind of. It's not a step change. It's a half step change. Okay. I think because it is quite controlled, as we know. I mean, as we you, do, you yes. know better than I. Um, but uh, I say, and you can have this argument that actually it's the greatest uh, exercise in control because if the governors can control the, the social media. They're actually controlling right into people's everyday lives in a much more effective way. I don't really buy that. I think, and this may seem a bit airy-fairy, but uh, I think the mere fact that people are able to communicate freely with one another is an enormous change there in a way that wasn't the case where you have all media owned by the state or the party or their organs uh, in China. Um, of course, 99.9% .9 of social media traffic is chit-chat. I had a nice breakfast this morning. I saw your boyfriend out with another girl last night or whatever it might be. It doesn't, you know, let's have a serious political discussion. Uh, but the mere fact of communication becomes something which is now embedded in people's lives, just like, you know, better food is embedded in people's lives. And you can't take it away. That's right. I'm going to uh, throw a, a, another couple of barbs your way and, and, and uh, see how these... Uh, this may be uh, a simply a, a British-English versus American-English usage uh, thing, but the, I, I note the word regime crop up a lot. Uh, with American writers, there is a, 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 a decided uh, connotation of illegitimacy when we use the word regime to talk about a, a political leadership. Uh, is that... Your intention, or is that an English versus? I think that's US? more an English thing. I mean, regime means the governing system, 
okay. to me more. It, it's true. You, you raise a good point. There is. It has come to have us because of regime change. I think it's become to have a certain pejorative. Would you talk about a democratic regime? I would, but perhaps a lot of people w wouldn't use the two words. Together. Well, the Tea Party does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, and so I think that's, that's more a usage thing. The, the other word is totalitarian. Uh, you refer on a couple of occasions to the, chi the current Chinese quote-unquote regime as a totalitarian one. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you think that's a fair characterization? That's what it would like to be. I mean, I think that the totalitarian you, means... You think that's really what, what it aspires to be? Yes. I, I, okay, I, I can't agree with you there. You can't I mean, agree with me certainly You know, and I'd say the way, the way they've gone about the reform, I mean, you know, reform is like motherhood and apple pie. Everybody loves it, of course, but uh, so you can't speak against reform openly. But the way reform is, I think, going to be carried out, implemented, is, as I say, very much a top-down, the totality, and everything I heard as I speak to people last night, uh, that at the, if it's interesting, the Reform Commission which has been set up, it isn't just economic. It covers social, cultural, communications, and lots of other things. And that Xi Jinping is very intent on this, that you've got to have a totality, as it were, of reform, which comes together, and that has to be controlled. Okay, I understand the usage that you, you, you're, you're implying here. Um, and, and one more. Um, you do a lot of takedowns of, of sort of idiotic straight-line projections of GDP growth. You don't like it when people sort of project out straight without... Any, and you seem to kind of want to have your cake and eat it too. So when when it comes to some negative statistic, you don't have any problem drawing that line out straight. Is that is that a fair? <laughs> That's probably a fair. Uh, you've caught me there. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, all right. No, I, well, probably, we'll I, I, <laughs> I probably say some weasel word like "if present trends continue." Yeah, that's Weasley. Rather right, than saying right, "present right. trends will continue." Right. Right. Um, you know, I, I do want to say though that it, it, it is, uh, in spite of my minor criticisms of it, it's a very, uh, it's a book that's very worth reading. It, it, you can finish it in a couple of hours, sitting down over over your bacon and eggs and a cup of coffee, and it's a, uh, it's terrific. It's it's chock full of very interesting, useful statistics with which you can go on to impress people, and uh, it, it's it's very well written. Uh, I, I found it very enjoyable. They're probably also, they're out, they'll Almost be out of enjoyable date by is this next conversation. Year. I, yeah, I think right. an another edition. So is that, all the more reason to hurry up. Buy it and, and, and read it here. I uh, do we have them in stock still? Sold out. Okay, well it's on it's on Kindle. You bookworm oh, folks. You can't say that in this book. <laughs> <laughs> you bookworm people won't. Oh, you'll be thrown out. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, we we can ex ex no, extirpate copies, that. More copies on their way. A special jet is flying them in. I want to open up the floor to questions. There are a couple of microphones. If you please raise your hand and please uh, speak close to the microphone. And please remember that w this will be podcasted. So uh, if you uh, say anything really embarrassing, your name will be mud forever. How do you see uh, human rights playing out during this century? I don't think there's going to be much advance or change in this. And this is part, in a sense, of why I said the totalitarian thing. I think there is a desire without taking individual human rights, a, a desire for control built into the system there. And the interesting uh, example, for instance, uh, the guy who was sent to jail, what, two months ago, uh, for uh, agitating for the assets of officials to be in publish, published and so on. This is actually in line with the anti what, what any anti-corruption campaign should want. But because he does it outside the system, He's in jail. You're talking about Xu Zhiyong, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, Xu Zhiyong. Yeah. Uh, and again and again, you get this. So um, I think 
human rights in the sense that you're probably using them, there's not going to be any change. The security apparatus remains an essential element uh, in the system. And the question of the rule of law rather than the rule by law, which is essential, I would have said, for any kind of democratization in China, I think it's going to be very slow indeed because if you have an independent judiciary, that immediately raises some major problems for the Communist Party, which prefers to operate through its own internal disciplinary commission. You know, I, I realize that there was one question that I did want to, to put Jonathan that, that I didn't get a chance to, and I think it, it's very important. Uh, and, and, and that's talking about China in its, uh, in its neighborhood, in its international context. Uh, one of the things that defines the United States as a truly great power is its system of worldwide alliances. Uh, sure, it never fully exercised control over, say, Russia or China, as you pointed out, but uh, it, its domination was, was, was clear. China is a lonely superpower if we're going to call it that. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the easy thing to say is China has one, al- one treaty ally in the world, which is North Korea. And uh, it, it doesn't, it, it rather, a de, de, rather a difficult ally to have, it must be said. It prefers bilateral, as we can see in Southeast Asia, it prefers bilateral uh, agreements rather than multilateral agreements. Understandably, uh, you know, it feels hemmed in, completely understandably, by the American fleet in Okinawa, Taiwan, and the Philippines, the, uh, the first island chain, which obviously is a kind of con- is a, a Cold War containment around China. You can understand the frustration uh, with that. Uh, on international affairs, very briefly, I mean, I have a best part of the last chapter of the book uh, deals with this. Again, completely understandably, China says we have become part of a globalized world system where the rules were made by other people before we came into this system and they're trying to make other rules the tpp the uh, trade agreements between uh, america and europe the which everyone but china agreement right? hem us in you know these are all anti-china agreements they are to, 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 to quite a large extent um but what i'm waiting for is for china to come up with alternative suggestions of its own and which it doesn't so are we back to a middle kingdom system uh, yes in a sense and for soft power which has been much talked about by the kind of authors we were talking about earlier on the time. Yes, uh, people are much more aware of Chinese culture, Chinese traditions and so on than they were. But I think, you know, you could say, this is a broad brush cliche to say, but if you go to an average, a a Chinese city, you will see far more signs of westernization there than you would see of sinification in, say, a mid-sized city in the Midwest or the middle of England. Very good. Do we have another question from this, this woman over here? Um, in the current political situation, um, at least since the administration changed and it, you've been able to observe, what's the likelihood that um, reform can actually succeed? It's better than, as I said, for the reasons I've said, it's better than it was. And there was a quote attributed to Xi Jinping when the Reform Commission first met. And he said, basically in order to get reform and deal with the vested interests who would oppose reform, it's got to be done at the very top by the Politburo. And I think there's a recognition of this. As I say, the difficulty comes, and this in the end is the the bottom line of my book, when the kind of changes which China needs to continue to grow, to continue on its course, when they come into contradiction or conflict with the basic political framework. And that may not be for four or five years. You know, we may be talking quite a long time out. But that, that will be uh, the question. I mean, a lot of shorter-term questions, of course. I mean, it's not a very long time. I mean, it will be the same administration. Yes. 
You're younger than I am. Yes. <laughs> I want to see this. <laughs> no, I mean, Xi Jinping's got till 2022. So this is, you know, you've got a long term coming out there. We have the next question here. Um, you said that uh, China joined a global system where the rules were already um, set. Do you think this is the situation in terms of Africa? Isn't, don't you think it's actually setting the rules in Africa? Sorry, yes. I, 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 meant, I, meant, I meant things like the IMF, the UN, and so on and so on, international. Yes, uh, and I mean, the reaction in Africa is interesting. It was certainly China went in. It was an alternative to the World Bank and requirements of, of Western uh, aid and donors and so on and so on, and did certainly set the rules itself. Now there's a bit of a, a pushback in, in some parts of China, about uh, some kinds of parts of Africa, particularly in South Africa. I mean, even Zuma is starting to say, you know, we need to rework all the, the arrangements with the Chinese. You've had this in Zambia, most certainly. And uh, it will be very interesting to see how that works itself out. You know, is there an alternative to Chinese aid for a lot of the, these countries? And, and also, finally, I mean, what happens when China has made an agreement with Mugabe being the obvious question, and Mugabe goes. Um, I, I just want to point out that the China, the China Africa Fund has just bought a 20% stake in the largest English-speaking newspaper group in South Africa, which is quite an interesting event. Yes, yes, yes. Great. We have another question from this gentleman over here, Alan. I was, it's ironic to me, because there's an observation that you quoted almost word for word McCartney on China <laughs> in 1793, and you talked about it being a super tanker that relied on a very good man at the helm. Yeah, that, that was well, deliberate. Course, uh, <laughs> that was quite <laughs> deliberate. Yes, 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 but yes. Uh, can I ask a question? Uh, can, can, uh, China has uh, created now a population with many of the characteristics that require and demand a civil society. Do you think China can really resist those demands? I think it would be foolish, foolish to resist it. I think you know, this will give the safety valve, which you don't get through competitive elections and so on. But... Everything, all the signs are that there is great suspicion about this still from, if you like, the security apparatus, however you define it, the, the, the power apparatus uh, there. Um, and indeed, I mean, some people in NGOs say it's going the other way more than anything else. You can, you can be an NGO, but you have to be NGO as a geo, basically, you know, to become part of, 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 of the government there. So, yeah. But I think this whole, you know, and obviously we talk about the urban middle class uh, there, but the whole question of aspirations, you know, a lot of people going abroad, much wider. I mean, China is immeasurably freer today than it was when the whole process started in the, in the late 1970s, There's absolutely no doubt, on an individual basis. But then that comes with certain aspirations, which may become requirements. The middle class have been kept very happy in China because they've done very well for the last 10 years economically. If you get slower growth, if you get you know, more graduate unemployment, already very high, if you get the private sector, middle class, being squeezed out by all the credit going to roll over state and uh, state-owned enterprise loans and so on, you know, you need a safety valve here, I think. We have a question in the very far back there. Hello. Um, first, a point about semantics. Um, in my view, the original meaning of totalitarian means a state, a political regime that dominates all aspects of society. Um, in China, uh, the regime has largely withdrawn uh, from total domination of society in the cultural and social sense, not in the political sense, though. 
So I uh, think it is not accurate to call the Chinese system still totalitarian. I agree um, with you completely, but you used the word regime just now, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I have a question, okay? Um, uh, the, there was an interesting piece of news a few days ago, uh, not from China, but from Simferopol, uh, the capital of the Crimea, where one of the senior leaders of the Crimean Tatars uh, warned Putin that if he would annex the Crimea, that he would have another jihad uh, on his neck, uh, as violent, if not worse, than the ones in Chechnya and in the rest of the Caucasus. Um, so I thought immediately of China, of course, because in recent months, the situation in Xinjiang has been uh, spiraling uh, dangerously out of control. And uh, I think it's quite conceivable that uh, China is drifting towards, uh, let's call it, a race war in its far west. Uh, what do you think of that? Uh, is, in my view, this is the main Achilles heel uh, that China is facing. Thank you. It's, uh, whether it's the main Achilles heel, I'm not sure, but it is an Achilles. You can have several Achilles heels, maybe. And again, you know, I go into this uh, in the book there. I think, yes, the situation is becoming much more conflicted, to use that non-verb, uh, in that area. And the trouble is we know so little about what is the extent to what is actually happening. We're told there were 200 attacks in 2012 on security forces of different kinds, but we don't know really what they insist on. The Kunming episode, you know, what was that? It's still pretty mysterious, all this. And I think I would agree with you. And if, you know, the West, NATO and so on, pull out of Afghanistan, there's the whole question there over the, the Pamir Mountains um, and, and so on. It's pretty close and pretty difficult to control given the, to the topography of Xinjiang. You know, I, I don't know how you would actually lock, lock it down completely. They're trying to, and so on. And trying to eradicate Uyghur culture, for instance, in, in Kashgar, and so on, you know, is only going to cause more resentment there. And we're told that Xi Jinping um, favors a, a, a tougher security approach. There was a kind of carrot and stick approach tried under Hu Jintao there. But uh, you can take it either way around. There was a local, uh, uh, quite a senior official, I can't remember exactly who he was, in Xinjiang, who, who said a little while ago, without a, s a stable security system, we won't get investment into Xinjiang. But then immediately people say exactly the opposite. If you've got a, a lockdown military security situation, nobody's going to invest there. And of course, remember, not just the resources of Xinjiang for gas, oil, coal, eventually uh, for shale gas, although there's no water, so probably not that. But also if the pipeline comes through from Russia, and there'll probably be a big Russian-Chinese uh, natural gas deal in order to bring it to Beijing so you have less pollution and so on, that will go straight through Xinjiang. I mean, these are sitting targets for uh, opposition movements there. So, no, I agree with you. I think this has become, you know, it's like, it's one of the things we've talked about for so long, but I think it's taking a, a different turn. Thank you very much. Yeah. On your first point, I think the totalitarian, the desire is to infiltrate, every, is to control everything too. Whether it's effective is another matter. So I should say a would-be totalitarian regime. Oh, I think Xi Jinping is driving back control. Yes, no, I, I, I would say so. Thanks very much. Uh, the Xi administration's description of the Chinese dream with its parallels or, or reference to the American ideal uh, and 
uh, associated dominance of the, the 20th century might suggest that China does have aspirations to, to take on the mantle of Britain and the U.S. In, into the 21st century. There are some descriptions of the Chinese dream as being domestic about, you know, you can have clean air and, and safe food. But is there an international power part of the Chinese dream? And are there examples of China playing a role of leadership internationally now that suggests that it would like to extend yeah. its, its influence and that the dream is, is a global dream? I don't think there are many signs of, China, of that kind of uh, attempt to use uh, an international um, uh, power, if you like, to, to, to spread the dream. I think the China dream is mainly domestic, as you say, and that's another reason why you know, I think that the concerns of China are domestic rather than world uh, uh, rule. Um, I think China would like to be the dominant power in its own region, and of course, you've got the whole irritant with Japan at the moment, a very complicated regional situation in which Chinese diplomacy has not covered itself with laurels exactly and has rather sent powers in the, the, the region into the, back into the hands of America. Although with Japan, this is a bit of an unknown quantity, I think, there. I think globally, what China really wants, and use an old term from uh, Godfather films, of which Xi Jinping is said to be very fond, what it wants is respect. It wants to be seen by the United States, above all, as equal number one. It doesn't want to displace the United States as such, but it wants the US, Washington, to treat it uh, as, as an equal. Um, and that's what it's aiming for. But I would argue that in order to do that, you've got to have a greater involvement in global affairs uh, than China has shown uh, at the moment to join more in uh, evolving responses to shared international problems whether they be financial, the environment, uh, or safety of, of maritime sea routes or whatever it is, a lot of which are in China's interests. But China is always uh, worried that these may come back and bite it in the, the ankle by affecting its domestic policies. It wants freedom at home from, from interference. Everybody does this way and so on. But at the same time, it wants more international recognition of itself as to use that old phrase of Bob Zellick's, a major global stakeholder. Responsible. Stakeholder. I, I, was, I was adapting. I was right. avoiding responsibility. So um, let, me, let me add something. That, first of all, uh, I think that, that what you were talking about with uh, the, the search for respect, uh, Orville Schell, who many of you may, may, may know or know of, um, who's the Arthur Ross director of the uh, U.S.-China program at the Asia Society. He was on my show just last week and said something I thought was very poignant. He said that in order to gain the kind of respect that China is after, the most important step is to earn the respect of its own citizenry first. Uh, I thought that was, that was absolutely correct. Um, when it comes to domestic articulation of the China dream, I think there's no, no better place to look than on uh, uh, the CCTV uh, Chunwan Gala, the, the Spring Festival Gala, where about three or four skits in, uh, the actor Huang Bo did this little thing where he was walking on a treadmill. I don't know how many of you raised your hands if you watched the Chunwan this year. And he, he, he sang this little song. Uh, it was more of a rap Wrapped this little song called where he talked about, you know, my, my aspirations aren't, aren't particularly high. And he went on to just sort of articulate precisely what I think most 
ordinary Chinese people believe is the Chinese dream, which is, as this gentleman pointed out, things like uh, you know, uh, safe food and safe water, clean air, being able to send your kids to school, buy a modest little place. I don't want much. I just want to, to be able to, to uh, afford, say, food and educate my children. And it was, it was, it was actually uh, quite nicely, nicely put, uh, and, and it rhymed, even. <laughs> this gentleman. Uh, outside the political sphere, do you feel that Chinese companies and consumer products um, such as Lenovo or Alibaba, Weixin, etc., can over time have global influence? And how will those products um, affect other people around the world's perception of China? They certainly have the potential to have global uh, impact. There's absolutely no doubt about that. The question is whether the management is able to extend know internationally and so on I mean you've had you know successes there as you say I mean I have a Lenovo laptop and so on it's just bust at the moment but uh, that may be <laughs> <a thing. laughs> Huawei you know you can have in telecoms China can do a lot of things and has been very important in Africa uh, for instance there although blocked in the United States uh, by friend you know you've got and it's a b2b brand I mean it's not a consumer it's, brand no, it's not a consumer brand you've got look I'm going to give you a more candid answer to that. I mean, that was very kind of you. Yes, yeah, yeah, but no, I say but it hasn't been done, and it, the the progress is very largely buying up other people's technology and management and marketing skills and so on, and that's a kind of second uh, tier. Consider this: if you were to go back in time, 25 years, to when Japan was the world's largest exporter of electronic products, you could have asked anyone in any developed country to rattle off the names of five, ten Japanese brands, and they could have done it easily. And many of them were quite polysyllabic. I mean, these are you know Toshiba, Hitachi, Mitsubishi, or whatever. Uh, not just electronics, but uh, even if you were to, to, to limit it to electronics. Now, today, China absolutely dwarfs Japan in terms of its its consumer electronics exports. But name me one fucking Chinese electronics brand out there. I mean, nobody can. Nobody knows the name of their DVD player and it was made in China. Anyone in America, you know, they'll be able to name you Lenovo or Hiart, but these aren't even, you know, really consumer electronics brands at all. Right. At the end of the century, is that going to change? It will, maybe. But, it, you know, I think that uh, branding isn't something that China has been very good at. Partially the reason is that for the Chinese consumer... Uh, uh, branding is kind of a chump's game. It's it's a sucker's game. If you're paying more, you know, value should be a, a, a straight uh, function of quality and price, right? That, that, sh that should be it. So they haven't paid a lot of attention to building brands, and I think they're only starting to really wake up to it today. We have a question from Melinda Liu. Thanks. So if the uh, answer to the question, will China dominate the 21st century, is no, um, what, did, what do you think the answer to the this question would be, will, ch will we keep asking, is China dominating China the century, dominate. 50 years from now? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that enough? For, yeah. I mean, no, as long it, as they it, haven't it, crashed and burned and people are saying, you know, sure. wow, you know, they're the next superpower, maybe, isn't that enough? I, I don't want to say this, but it's falling up from your straw uh, line at the moment. And that's why I'm very glad to have got this book out, because I do sense that the view is changing there and that fewer people are asking this question, which I'm asking. So better get the book through quite quickly, I think. Uh, mind you, I should also say, to further uh, diminish my uh, <laughs> uh, uh, guru status, um, I don't think anybody can dominate the world. I mean, you know, the question in a sense is the, the way thing. We're in a world where you've got China, you've got the United States, Europe, despite all its problems, still the biggest economic uh, the, uh, gr group in the world, and a lot of other kind of moving around, smaller powers, you know, is it the BRICS, is it the Mints, and so on, and so on, and so on. And 
it's un, you can't dominate. Nobody can, no one power can dominate that. But because the power that was perceived as having dominated that, the United States, is now perceived as having drawn back into itself and diminished, which it has in a sense. There, there. Although I would say American overreach was actually over, overrated for a lot of the time. Um, there's this feeling somebody has to step into the, the, the breach. And perhaps, you know, my next book will be, Can Anybody Dominate the World? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody will read that, I don't think. But I, I don't think China, in that sense, I also, perhaps I'm naive, but I, and American right-wingers would say I was very naive and being a patsy for the Chinese, but I actually don't think Beijing wants to dominate the world. It knows this is, this is a fool's game. This is a, I mean, look, you know, look what happened to the US in the end. Well, but will they still even be a contender? I hope not, because I hope that people will be sensible and say, we're in a fragmented, multipolar world. This is a terrible word, multipolar, but it is actually true. Uh, world, and we've got to work out ways of making that work more efficiently, rather than thinking, ah, oh, there's going to be a great big uh, super champion always coming along to uh, dictate things. Just a reminder: if you ask a follow-up question, make sure to have a mic in your face. Yes, this gentleman. Uh, yes, uh, I have a question. Uh, one of the main thrusts of, uh, the, of the reform is uh, anti-corruption. Yeah. And you read about in the paper how a deputy governor here is under investigation and a police chief there has been uh, imprisoned and so on and so forth. This raises, for me anyway, a kind of existential question. If you can't have your hands in the till, uh, what's the purpose of the Communist Party anyway? Uh, and will, uh, as this goes on, will... Sure. <laughs> You, you really need to go like take care of that cynicism problem. That's cynicism. That's, that's crippling, well, man. That's you ask a very good question because, and it goes back a long way, because there's actually uh, I read a as you, somebody may mention a biography of Chiang Kai-shek uh, some years ago and so on. And this this was the question asked by Chiang under Chiang, and then later on uh, by the communists, uh, Little Deng uh, used to regularly say this. And the, the question was always the phrase is, the problem is. That unless we get, unless the party gets rid of corruption, it will not earn the people's trust. If it does get rid of corruption, it will have no members. <laughs> this goes back a long way, oh. and you know it's it's uh, so. A, a few uh, about six weeks ago, the uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's website was taken down. You can no, you can no longer have access to it here. Uh, I think I heard. I can't check it, of course, that uh, it was because uh, they were talking about corruption at very, very high levels of the party. Uh, I don't know uh, if you know anything about that, but at any rate, it was taken down and it's still not up. I heard the same thing, but I, you may know, because of this, I don't know, but you've had cases, obviously, uh, New York Times and Bloomberg, which ran stories about Wen Jiabao and uh, Xi's family, enrichment and so on and whose websites have been blocked and so on and then the case of Bloomberg which decided not to run an investigative report into a very well-connected very rich businessman well-connected with the present leadership and so on um, so yes there's, there, there's playback on that and that of course is in this the Achilles heel you know fine you're going for political people like former standing committee member Zhu, Bo Xi Lai, all, all, Zhu's, uh, all the, the associates, people in uh, the energy industry, uh, former security ministry people, the SASAC head, et cetera, et cetera. You're going for all them, but what about your own family? Mm. Obviously, and this goes into the trust deficit. You know, it, 
raises a question. I'm slightly reminded of, I don't know whether you've read Hilary Mantel's second volume about Thomas Cromwell. Oh, wonderful. Bring Up the Bodies. Bring Up the Bodies, which is yeah. wonderful. I think it's actually probably better than the first it volume. It is. It is better. And there's a, a center, uh, if I remember right, there's a passage in that where Cromwell is sitting down with his lieutenant, I can't remember what his name is, and they're discussing how they're going to bring down the, the Boleyn family and the Anne Boleyn circle. And uh, the lieutenant says to Cromwell, so have you got the dirt on so-and-so? Yeah. Have you got the dirt on so-and-so? Yeah. Have you got the dirt on so-and-so? Yeah. Ah, I see, says the lieutenant. You've got the dirt on everyone. It's just a question of who you choose to use it against. So there, and there is an apocryphal story, and I'm sure it's apocryphal, that the present Mr. Wang, the present head of Wang Shan, the, the present head of the disciplinary commission. This is one of those stories that I have no idea if it's true, but in a sense it should be true. There's an Italian phrase for that, which I always forget. That uh, at the first meeting he presided over, a man came in and distributed dossier, put a dossier in front of everybody, and they thought this was the agenda for the meeting, and they opened it, and it was a list of all their assets. It should be true. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> That's very good. Thank you for um, from a question from the, the, the last man in Beijing who does not have a VPN. I note with interest <laughs> I note with interest that the only websites on which the Bookworm Literary Festival uh, are being promoted are Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. What do these three have in common? <laughs> They're all blocked in China. Right? Instagram's blocked. It was blocked until recently at Lenron. No, not blocked? Oh. <laughs> I'll try to refrain from making a really sorry. Okay, uh, I'll be nice. We have a question from this young woman here. You pointed out at the beginning that the bush, uh, the bush of Chinese civilization is actually being pu pushed and promoted by the top. So it's, virtually, it's actually designed by the party and promoted as, as true. But I, I've seen uh, a huge criticism of this view from uh, Chinese who had a great, a, a big experience or a considerable experience abroad, uh, who studied abroad or worked abroad and came back and actually don't consider uh, what people used to think as right here as right. So my question is, would you include this as a challenge uh, to the role of the party in the future? Well, you have to have a... Va yeah, the answer is yes. But this involves a value judgment, which some people would deny. Because I'm, you know, what I'm saying basically is, if you, go, if you travel 80 million visits abroad by Chinese every year, they spend time abroad, they see, in some ways, quite similar, probably material ways of life there. But they see different ways of operating. They see regimes operating in a different way. Now... You might say, they come back and they say, so what? You know, we have our way of doing it and they do that. If you think actually that um, there are values in independent legal systems, in democracy and so on and so on, uh, and in relative uh, lack of corruption, you would say, yes, it's a challenge because they will come back and say, we'd like a bit of that at home. But that involves a, a value judgment. I'm aware on my side, which some people who think Western values are terrible would not go along with. So it's not an objective judgment of mine. Yes, yes, uh, I do agree. But my, what I see is also not uh, an economic judgment of what is right or, or wrong, but also a behavior uh, change, mm. a behavioral change of uh, how, how people actually see society. And I'm not talking about this as, okay, let's gather together and protest and change everything, but 
change uh, through change of behavior, mm, this actually creates uh, uh, a change in society from the bottom there. Yeah, the, the, certainly. You know, I think I think this is this is one of the evolutionary issues in society, which which I've been talking about, and which are very difficult to deal with in a basically top-down system, because how you control, you know, it's the other thing, how do you control what people think, and so on, and then how they act as a result. It's very difficult, unless you've got the tremendous momentum, which perhaps there was uh, in the 80s and towards in the end of the 90s, of belief that this is a great ship going forward regardless, and I want to be part of it. We have a question from the gentleman over here. Hi. Um, my question is more tuned towards, I guess, not so much China dominating uh, the 21st century, but its growing influence on not just the lives of Chinese people, but on the ideas and systems and people uh, overseas as China goes abroad in terms of uh, its economic ambitions and also, in a way, the China system legitimizing authoritarian governments. And uh, I think there was an article in the New York Times maybe six months ago about, I guess, the West might having to play by the rules set by China since it's been shown to be pretty effective. Well, and, I, and I, I guess in the context yeah. of which where you have Chinese uh, going overseas to influence media in terms of acquiring ownership yeah. and also uh, just generally speaking impacting how governments overseas may react to the rise of China. Mm. Well, I wouldn't really accept that. Now, first of all, obviously, China's emergence into the world, uh, re-emergence into the world, which is whatever phrase we use, has had an enormous effect on governments, who you mentioned at the end. I mean, basically, I think governments around the world don't know how to deal with China. They, they, they haven't worked it out, because they want part of this economic game. But, you know, will they undertake... You know, will they agree never to, to mention the Dalai Lama, for instance, in it, or ever to let alone look at him, uh, let alone shake his hand? It, it, it comes with, you know, and, and China's people have been pretty hesitant about annoying China, if you like, I think. So, yes, influence has gained there. China's still got money to spend. So, you know, what have we got in London? Who's going to regenerate the south bank of the River Thames in London? A number of Chinese companies, some of which are more dubious than others, and we will see. But you then get the wonderful uh, statement by the chairman of Dalian Wanda, who's building a big development on the south bank of the Thames. He said, I love London, land so cheap, <laughs> which uh, people in London would not necessarily <laughs> agree with. So you've got that, certainly. You know, you, you have... Um, uh, companies not doing so well in Europe, terribly anxious, you know, that China, they can sell to China. And so, yes, yes, yes. And you've got, uh, obviously, the export trade of all kinds of things uh, in China. So that uh, that is there, and that is great uh, influence uh, for China. But what so, about this Beijing consensus? But I don't think the Beijing consensus and the whole model, you know, that China is seen as a model. You say, you know, it gives... Uh, support to authority, authority, but I think people, and I mean, I argue this in the book, obviously, they don't see China as a replicable model. I mean, China was sui generis. Was, there was a specific set of factors that Deng Xiaoping knew how to make use of in 1978 uh, for political reasons, although the, the, the process was economic. But if I can crudely put one thing, you get in terms of economics, in terms of political systems, you get people demonstrating in the Ukraine, in the Middle East, in favor of Western democracy, however 
you uh, define that. I've never seen anybody marching in the streets for the installation of a Chinese regime. Mm-hmm. And I use the regime word again. You did, you did. You know, that's very crude to say that. But I think it goes quite a long way, Chinese influence, but it's really quite, quite limited. And in terms of soft power, yes, Chinese media, have, uh, uh, they spend a lot of, lot of money, CCTV, China Daily, etc., Confucius Institutes all over the place. But I'm not sure. I mean, you know, I don't know if there's figures on it, but I think more people are learning English in China than are learning Chinese Mandarin outside China. Right. Uh, so Jonathan still has three more books to write this year, and so we don't want to spend too much of his time here. Uh, let's l- one more well, question for him. I'm oh. going to say one thing. I have to do some blatant self-promotion. No, well, God. Okay. Having done nine books on China, I think I'm giving China a little rest now. So you better buy this one because it's the last one. I've got three books on France to do next. Yeah. <laughs> last question here from this lady back here. Yes, it's on rules uh, setting. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning in your definition that uh, uh, domination would mean leadership in role setting globally, or at least a, a significant role. And you later mentioned that uh, China has reacted to this inability to set the roles and in fact having, or it's, it's li- it is currently living by roles other people set, yep. and it is being prevented from entering into the roles setting environment as you may mentioned TPP and I just wondered where you thought that was going and how you would evaluate the Western Well I think the danger if we're looking ahead not a projection straight thing is that you will get a situation where really you have no, there is no world leadership that you can see in the present I think it's fragmented so you have to have people working together and evolve some kind of system out of that I mean how you can do that I don't know and with the the quality of leadership around the world today, perhaps that's rather a a, a fancy thing to to, to think about there. The danger would be that you got a situation where China felt threatened, where its internal situation became more fragile, both economically uh, as you get the the danger. Reform is wonderful, but it brings slower growth and higher inflation, so you're going to have a difficult time there, where you get more social pressures in China, where you get the kind of pressures in Xinjiang, which were being referred to a moment. You get all these internal things not working very well, and at the same time, externally, China feels hemmed in by the United States. It sees Japan as a dangerously aggressive old foe that's there, it sees Vietnam down on its south, it sees India as an American surrogate, etc, etc, etc. And all this comes together in a kind of dangerous nationalist outburst uh, of some kind. The, that's the, the negative side. The positive side would be that actually you could have some kind of international structure set up politically, economically, and for the environment, certainly, uh, which would take account of the fractured state of the world. But I don't think that's going to happen in the 21st century either. So I'm afraid I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic about where we're going on that front. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your patience. And, uh, and thank you very much, Jonathan Fenby. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> we're an excellent concert. I want to uh, thank Peter, uh, Tom, and Ben for, for all the help that you've, you've given us here at the, the Bookworm. And uh, I hope that you'll enjoy the rest of the terrific sessions they've got lined up. And, uh, and remember, you can listen to this show on the Seneca Podcast. Uh, we are syndicated on the excellent China File website, so you can look for us there. 
Uh, take care and uh, have an excellent afternoon.